Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from London, a good Monday to you. I'm Richard Quest, sitting in for Julia Chatterley. As we start the new week, this is your need to know. TikTok has done a deal. Oracle has won. We need to look at what they actually got out of the deal against Microsoft, who seems to have disappeared. There's a tech takeover. NVIDIA is buying ARM Holdings. It's a massive deal. We need to look at the implications. And OPEC's anniversary. OPEC is 60 years old. We have an exclusive interview with the Secretary General on the relevance of the oil organization. It is Monday, I'm Richard Quest. Time for First Move. And a warm welcome to First Move. Julia's off today, I'm Richard Quest at the helm. The way the markets are looking and the way things are trading as we go into a new week and a certain amount of uncertainty following on from what we saw last week. Uh, the futures are solidly higher. Tech is in the lead. Two straight weeks of declines, but there is encouraging vaccination news and multi-billion dollar deals. And those are two reasons why the Nasdaq and the S&P are powering ahead. NVIDIA is buying SoftBank's chip giant uh, designer unit Arm for $40 billion. The biotech giant Gilead is buying Immune Medics. That's a deal worth $21 billion. So two, two deals well and truly getting us out of the blocks. And the big name, name names like Apple, Tesla and Amazon are all up in the pre-market. Uh, they all fell sharply in last week, 4% or more. Now they are putting on back some of that ground again. Another important week for investors, the Fed holds its final meeting before the US elections. Apple has a product launch set for tomorrow as the US releases new retail sales numbers on Wednesday. Europe's mostly higher. The best gains are seen in Paris with the Eurozone industrial production slowed down in July. IAG shares are down nearly 30% in London and Madrid. And it's a positive day in Asia. SoftBank shares rose 9% on the news of its chip deal with NVIDIA. Japan is higher too. A close ally of Shinzo Abe set to become the next prime minister. The details of all of these and the drivers. Microsoft, it appears, has lost out to Oracle in a bid to buy TikTok. Well, when I say buy TikTok, it's not exactly clear what deal Oracle's done whether it's some sort of alliance, some sort of franchise, who knows? Selena Wang is in Hong Kong and has been looking into it. Firstly, before we look at what Oracle got, how did we get to where we are? Well, Richard, this comes as quite a surprise. Microsoft had been the first to publicly say it was interested in courting TikTok. It had been seen as a front runner. And for many, it was seen as a more logical partner or bidder. Since it has deeper pockets than Oracle, it also has more experience when it comes to consumer technology. Yet Microsoft saying that ByteDance has rejected its bid, leaving Oracle as the main one here. And a source has told me that 
TikTok, ByteDance will be entering some sort of partnership with Oracle. My source said that it would not be seen as complete control of it. It wouldn't be seen as a regular takeover. It would be a sort of technology partnership with Oracle providing cloud computing services, other technology services. So this seems to be ByteDance's best attempt to both appease the Trump administration as well as China. Trump had said the administration had set a deal by September the 20th. Uh, And China this morning, as you'll have seen, have comments uh, accusing the U.S. of wanting it both ways and bullying Chinese companies. But where does this lead? Is this the sort of arrangement that will require approval, probably, from both administrations? Well, experts have told me that it's not even clear if this deal would appease the Trump administration, since Trump has said that he wants a sale of the company or it will be banned. What we're seeing here is some sort of partnership. It would also likely have to clear the Committee on Foreign Investments in the U.S., which would likely require ByteDance to make some sort of mitigations to secure the national security of it. For instance, it could require some vetted Americans to be on the board. It could also require some sort of firewall put in place between ByteDance and TikTok. Then you have the Chinese side unclear how much leverage Beijing will have here, but recently China did update its export rules, which would ban the export of certain technologies. So there are two sides that they have to appease, and it's unclear if this partnership really reaches the mark on either side. I guess at the end of the day, Selena, to the experts, does the gut say this is going to happen, that the Oracle deal, um, be it a halfway or not even that house, is going to find some way to pass muster. Well, Richard, let's put it this way. We should expect further twists and turns in this saga. I spoke to a former member of CFIUS who said that even if this Oracle deal with partnership with ByteDance and TikTok goes through, it's still going to be incredibly complicated. We can look at previous instances where national security has been an issue as a sort of template, for instance, with Sprint and SoftBank back in 2013. But experts tell me that this is really quite unprecedented in terms of the geopolitical nature of it, the fact that the Trump and the president have directly been involved in this. But I do want to point out, Richard, we don't know how much politics played into this, but Oracle and Larry Ellison, the founder, have had close relationships with Trump. Oracle is one of the few Silicon Valley companies to publicly support Trump. Larry Ellison, the founder, had hosted a fundraiser for Trump. The CEO had also served on Trump's transition team. So that could potentially play into this, but we don't know. And I also want to mention that Walmart would have been working with Microsoft in this bid for ByteDance. Walmart is now telling us that they are still interested in investing in ByteDance and that it is still in discussions with the company. My guess is that that Trump aspect, that Trump alliance or whatever you want to call friendship, plays big in the end of there. Selena, thank you. I appreciate it. Selena Wang in Hong Kong. Selena talked about SoftBank. Uh, Well, another deal, this time SoftBank on the selling side, selling its chip-making division, Arm, uh, to NVIDIA of the United States. $40 billion is the price. Uh, Anna Stewart is watching this one. Arm Holdings. Now, SoftBank only bought it a few years ago, so it's already making a sizable profit. But why are they selling it to NVIDIA? Uh, to be quite frank, it's all to do with cash. SoftBank outlined in March that it needed cash. It was going to make 
$41 billion worth of disposals that sold down sticks in Alibaba, T-Mobile USA. This, however, has surprised some, given, as you said, it only bought this uh, four years ago. It will, at the end of the deal, as a stock and cash deal, if it all goes through, we can talk about those competition concerns, but it will give it a stake in NVIDIA, which it had a stake in last year, but sold it. And Richard, NVIDIA's share price has over doubled this year. It's one of the great winners of the pandemic. Now for NVIDIA, they make the chips that go into gaming consoles. They're doing, as you can tell, rather well. They want to get into smartphones clearly and integrate that technology. So it makes sense for both those parties. The big question is, does it make sense for poor arm holdings that's being tussled between the two of them? Anna Stewart. Anna, we will leave it there uh, for the moment. Thank you, Anna. The EU and China are having discussions and talking about trade and climate issues. Coronavirus and human rights is also expected to be on the agenda in what could be extremely hard talks. CNN's David Culver's in Beijing. Hey there, Richard. Yeah, this talk between the EU members, and particularly Germany's Chancellor Merkel and President Xi Jinping here, is rooted essentially in trying to counter any anti-China sentiment. I should say what is growing anti-China sentiment, mostly because of the outbreak. And of course, the U.S. has spearheaded a lot of this in the international realm, but there have been other Western countries that have come out and have been obviously deeply impacted and deeply concerned with the early mishandling and alleged cover-ups of the coronavirus here in China. However, what you're looking at now is part of a concerted effort, and it's not only involving the president, Xi Jinping, but just a couple of weeks ago, he sent out his foreign minister, Wang Yi, who went to several European nations to try again to bring into the fold some support and some understanding and perhaps, as they put it, some cooperation. The question, Richard, going forward is how effective is this going to be? Because you've got several issues at play here. You've got market access. You've got data security. You've got Huawei. You've got human rights, as you mentioned. And of course, the Chinese now have themselves in this position in which they and the U.S. are almost competing to win over the European nations to try to sway them to realize which one they should side with. The Chinese in this effort right now have what seems to be the uphill climb in that the outbreak obviously is something that sits on a lot of minds and is continuing to impact a lot of countries, Richard. Does anything come of these things, David? As of now, it seems like it has not been too effective. And I speak specifically to Wang Yi's visit just a couple of weeks ago. State media, of course, portrays that they believe European nations are going to be swayed and they're going to find cooperation and that perhaps China will win them over. But as of now, it does not seem to be effective, at least in the public sphere of rhetoric. We'll see what action comes out of this. We know that a European Council is meeting later this month to decide how essentially to come forward with a, a, an agreed-upon approach to China, as they have put it. Meantime, the U.S. is going out with their Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and, and going on a tour, essentially, Richard, to portray the China threat. So it's this back and forth. And, of course, the U.S. now coming up on their presidential election. We'll see if that has any impact in how the rest of the world, particularly Europe, is going to take uh, China and, and really change the image of China for them. David, David, thank you. David Culver reporting from Beijing. And so to vaccines and coronavirus. The CEO of Pfizer says that they should know if their vaccine works by October. And speaking to CBS, he also discussed the mechanisms of vaccine funding. I wanted to liberate 
our scientists from any bureaucracy. When you get money from someone, that always comes with strings. I didn't want to have any of that. I wanted them, basically I gave them an open checkbook so that they can worry only about scientific challenges, not anything else. Right, Elizabeth Cohen is with me. We have much to attend to, Ms. Cohen, on our vaccine agenda. Firstly, this idea that, um, I mean, we built a picture. First, the vaccine manufacturers all say in a joint letter, science first. Now Pfizer's saying likely to be ready by the end of October. That suggests, put me right if you, if you need me, that suggests that they're ruling out an October surprise before the US election. You know, it's really hard to tell what he means. It's also hard to tell why Mr. Borla keeps repeating these predictions. There's no public health reason to be making predictions. There must be some other reason. Why in the world would you make predictions? What exactly did his words, words mean? Does he mean that he's going to be ready to go to the FDA and other regulatory authorities in other countries and say, please give us approval, give us an authorization to put this on the market? Or is he saying, we'll know in our own heads whether or not it works. It is so hard to tell and it is unclear to me. And Richard, you're the business guy, so maybe you can illuminate on this. Why would he keep making these pronouncements? It is unclear to me. To keep faith, to keep the faithful going. Uh, but you're right, it is extremely unusual, but, but we have more developments that we must chew over. AstraZeneca now saying that the Oxford trial will resume. So I guess that they are comfortable either they found out the reason that the patient who fell ill i believe is in the uk it's not the illness is not related to the virus, to the vaccine you know if they are going back and resuming their trials yes that that would mean that there was some kind of investigation and it was decided that it was unrelated to the vaccine it is unfortunate that we don't know the details of that we're the ones who are going to have to literally roll up our sleeves and take a vaccine, not have to, but choose to. We're the ones who are going to have to say, do we want to take a vaccine or not? Do we want to take this vaccine? So we know that there were two illnesses that caused a pause, one in July and one more recently. It would be nice to know, what were the details behind that? What exactly did they have? We know for one of them, we don't know for the other one. Um, what exactly were the findings? Why do you think it's unrelated? You know, this is tough stuff. This gets very nuanced. Someone is involved in a vaccine trial, gets an illness. You want to know, is it related? There's an investigation. Why not tell us the results of that investigation? You don't have to violate the patient's privacy because that's the first thing pharmaceutical companies say is, oh, can't do it violates privacy that is simply patently not true you can say what the results were without and what the investigation entailed without violating privacy they're not doing that people already don't trust this vaccine people many people already have said uh-uh i'm not getting it and when you hide these details it engenders more mistrust elizabeth cohen on fine form for us uh, this morning elizabeth thank you now some other news, the news that's making news around the world. The pres President Trump is going to California this morning in the coming hours. The massive fire, wildfires, quite extraordinary, worrying and downright upsetting pictures that we're seeing. It's continuing to burn up and down the U.S. West Coast. Three states uh, affected, Washington, Oregon, California. The fires have killed at least 35 people in, in those states. The firefighters are racing to save lives and property. California's governor and the mayor of Los Angeles uh, both say climate change fuels the fire. 
For the first time in nearly eight years, Japan has a new prime minister. Yoshihide Suga was the overwhelming choice of the ruling Liberal Democratic Party. Mr. Suga was the right-hand man of Shinzo Abe. He's stepping down as PM for health reasons. CNN's Will Ripley with this report from Hong Kong. Japanese lawmakers took a crucial step on Monday towards choosing the next prime minister of the country by electing Yoshihide Suga, the chief cabinet secretary under Shinzo Abe, as the leader of the ruling LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party. On Wednesday, the full parliament will vote, and Suga is widely seen as a shoo-in for the prime minister's job. Now, when it comes to policy, there are not a lot of differences between Suga and Abe, probably because Suga has been Abe's right-hand man for his entire second term as prime minister, a record-setting almost eight years in office. And so Suga knows uh, Abe's views on the economy, on the COVID-19 pandemic, on uh, taking Japan away from its pacifist constitution and trying to uh, redefine its role on a global stage, making it more assertive uh, in this part of the world. And then, of course, also what's going to happen with the Olympics, which was one of Abe's uh, prized projects. So Suga now inherits all of that, and he knows what Abe's approach has been, but where the two men differ dramatically is in their, their personal story, and some have said their star power. If Abe was born to be the prime minister, being the son of an elite political dynasty, a third-generation prime minister, Suga, you know, comes from very humble roots. He was the son of a farmer and a schoolteacher. He's worked a lot of odd jobs, including at a cardboard factory and a fish market as he worked his way up through Japanese politics. So he has that everyman approach that Abe lacked. And in fact, Abe was accused at times of being out of touch with the regular lives of everyday Japanese. But Suga also does not have the international cachet that Abe has built. He's been able to develop relationships with world leaders from Donald Trump to Xi Jinping. And Suga is an unknown quantity. So he goes into the job having to start from scratch on a global stage, but well prepared, he says, to take on the domestic challenges that Japan is struggling with right now during this pandemic. I'm Will Ripley reporting in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, there's Will. Thank you. Coming up, despite the pandemic, there's a slew of technology companies that are coming to the market, the IPOs uh, that we should expect. Uh, valuations are frothing. It seems like a good time, but there's so much uncertainty. And OPEC is 60, an exclusive interview with the Secretary General in a moment. And a warm welcome back. It is First Move. I'm Richard. Requests in for Julia Chatterley live tonight, uh, today from London. The Futures. Take a look. We're just about nine minutes, eight minutes away from the markets open. And they put it a solid open with the best being uh, there than Nasdaq. Tech is bouncing back. Now, admittedly, it lost 4% last week. Also watching closely, uh, the House is back in session in Washington. The Speaker wants an emergency aid bill passed before uh, November elections. And Oracle is likely to rise 7%. Oracle is to partner with Sorry, TikTok is to partner with Oracle and Microsoft is flat after losing the bidding. Greg Valier is with us, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments. Greg beautifully brings us together the business, the markets and the Washington politics. Um, so Oracle's done a deal with TikTok, bearing in mind, and, and I'm not suggesting uh, nothing untoward, believe me, but bearing in mind the friendship between Donald Trump and Larry Ellis, 
of Oracle, uh, one would imagine that Oracle gets the deal. I think that's a safe assumption, Richard. Uh, you know, there could still be a snag, but I think that Ellison will get it. Yep. So where, where, where is the politics in all of this in terms of Capitol Hill, in terms of the way in which um, politicians are viewing what is happening in tech, particularly as we have a series of IPOs and a series of deals being done? Well, I think that the Trump administration has issues with several of the tech companies. I think Kamala Harris is an interesting player. She's got a lot of friends in Silicon Valley. They've supported her campaigns. And I think she <clears throat> I think she is not inclined to take any harsh action. She certainly is not inclined to break up the tech industry. Greg, the other thing is this this latest attempt by the speaker to get some form of, I won't even call it stimulus, I'd call it holding on money for those who are out yeah. of work and, and haven't got much. Um, is she going to be successful? The last one failed in the Senate. Will there be an opportunity to get a deal done before November? Right now, Richard, it looks unlikely. It's very frustrating. People are starting to worry about bankruptcy, evictions, small businesses aren't doing particularly well. There's a real need for more assistance. I think we'll hear that from Jerome Powell at the Fed's press conference later this week. Yet at the same time, the Democrats have dug in their heels. They want, you know, two billion or three billion and they're not going to get it. That, I assume that's your, your fire alarm going off in the background or they're testing it in some uh, shape or form. But um, just briefly, Greg, at the end, as we look to this week with the Fed, no move likely, but it is going to be the Fed. We're watching what they tell us is necessary for the economy. Well, they're certainly going to tell us they want more inflation. They'll gladly tolerate more inflation. I don't quite know how we get there. But I think that's going to be a big part of their statement. And I also think they'll talk about more assistance for the economy, which needs some right now. Greg Vallier joining us from Washington. Greg, we're grateful for that. Um, siren seems to have stopped just as we have finished as well. So I'm guessing it was the fire alarm being yes, tested. We are going to look at the markets and see how they are trading. Um, the, the futures and how they look at the moment. The futures are looking strong across all the major indices. Uh, the NAD the Nasdaq is up. Uh, it will be up by one and a half percent. The S&P up similarly and the Dow futures also up. We'll take a short break. This is First Move. Right. It is just coming up to 9.30 on Monday, the start of a new week, 9.30 on the eastern coast of the United States, which means the day of trading is about to begin on Wall Street. It is going to be an, a bullish start to the session with all the futures pointing upwards, the best being seen on the Nasdaq. Not surprisingly, there are deals galore. It seems multi-billion dollar deals, multi-multi-billion billion dollar deals. If you look at the arm holdings and then you look at TikTok and a whole variety of IPOs that we're expecting throughout the course of the week. 
The trading gets underway shortly. Solid gains, a loss of 4.5% last week on the Nasdaq. That is now going to be reversed to some shape, form or description. Uh, the applause from those on the floor. Let us join the New York Stock Exchange. It's the opening bell for a Monday, the start of a new week. The backdrop drop there, of course, is a thank you to the firefighters across the United States, particularly on the western seaboard of California, Oregon and Washington State, which, of course, are heavily under fires at the moment. And so trading begins on Wall Street. The trading week is underway and stocks are higher. Look at that. Out of the gate, the best part of 200 points, uh, nearly three quarters of one percent on the Dow Jones Industrials. Uh, multi-billion dollar deals are being done this, so far this morning. TikTok is buying, biotech sectors buying, Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank say the worst of the tech sell-off may be over. Pfizer says COVID-19 vaccine likely before the end of the year. But not so fast for traditional businesses. The parent company of New York Sports Club uh, and other fitness centers has announced today it is filing for bankruptcy. And it is a busy day for tech IPOs. Big names include the gaming tech firm Unity Software, telemedicine company Amwell, and the cloud firm Snowflake. Um, Warren Buffett is a snowflake investor. Airbnb's deal could come later this year. Let's talk about that. You see the three of them, the three big ones. Kathleen Smith joins me, the chair and co-founder of Renaissance Capital, an IPO investment and research firm. Kathleen, it is great to have you. Always good to have you. So we've got a, an interesting agenda for IPOs. Despite the tech, um, I would say, hiccup of recent weeks, the appetite to IPO is still there. Which of those that are currently going do you like the look of? Well, certainly the point about the hiccup, it was barely a hiccup because investors seem to have put aside those worries and are continuing to chase these high growth tech companies. And this September, we have about $12 billion of dollars worth of IPOs that are hoping to get out the door, which would make it the most uh, active, uh, most highly valued amount of money raised compared to 2014. Half of the product coming out the door for September are software companies, and the rest are uh, healthcare and a few others. So software is just leading the charge, and that's because investors are chasing growth. Is it a foolish you chase, do you think, at the moment? Um, the, 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 the uncertainty is so great, but I guess software can be used by everyone in, you know, pandemic or not. But, but, but I wonder whether this, this chase to push up valuations in high-tech companies eventually comes to grief. Well, you have to be concerned about the valuations. And they're, they're so high because interest rates are so low. And if investors can find a growth company anywhere, that has uh, much more value in a low interest rate environment. And we're also seeing, you know, an interest, the acceleration of turning the economy 
into all things digital. So these software companies are helping com other companies uh, offer products and services in the virtual world and being able to right. be more efficient. We have to worry because valuations are very high. Right. So let's look at your top five holdings uh, that you sent us in the disclosures. Um, it, Zoom and Uber are in there, which, which I, Zoom I sort of understand uh, in terms of its, its, its run up. Zoom, um, the, you know, it's, I mean, look, year to date, at 460. Do you know what annoys me about Zoom, Kathleen? Each time I've looked at that stock, I've thought it's overpriced. I'm not going to buy it. And of course, as I've thought that, it's gone up another 100%, another 100% and so on. It's classic, classic. Um, even Uber. But of those five, what is it about them that you, you find particularly attractive? Is there a common theme? Basically, they're about new ways of doing business. And uh, it did help for Zoom to be part of the whole work from home uh, category of equities. But Zoom in particular is expanding uh, more than you would think. It's not just a video conferencing company. It's offering uh, workplace interaction, uh, telephone. You know, it, it, it's trying to capture all uh, digital work. And so there's a lot of... Um, expansion of this company, in addition to the fact that more and more communications being done by video. When they first came out, uh, I was surprised they had wonderful financials. And I thought, how could a company with these great financials be in the video conferencing business? Didn't we see this already with Skype and others? But this company has figured out, they came from WebEx, and they figured out how to make a really useful product. And they keep uh, beating their the market's expectations. But this is, all, you know, on a more general point, a more general investment philosophical point, this is an example of, 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 of looking at a share price, seeing it having risen and thinking this can't go further. There's not more to give. And, I, you know, as I say, I looked at it back in April. I looked at it back in May. I looked at it back in June. And I kept thinking this is bust. I mean, the, the gains are there. There's no more room on the upside. And I'm wondering what your advice to investors is without not on a particular stock, but as a matter of philosophy. When you see a stock that's run up, at what point do you say, I still think it's time to buy? I think these are very hard decisions. We're talking about actually doing a lot of homework to figure out valuations, expected growth rates. So, you know, our approach to this is we created indexes that our ETFs run on. And the way that the US IPO ETF works is it's a buy and hold uh, basket of the largest companies that have gone public over the last two years. And it rebalances every quarter. And after two years, we move on. So that is a rules-based product. We're not talking about active management here, but being able to capture the returns on these hard to value new names that enter the marketplace uh, as IPOs. Now, so we there is performance that investors can get. If you're an active manager, this is a lot of hard work and you would pay an active manager for the work of analyzing and knowing a lot about the company such as Zoom, can it achieve the growth rate? Because the multiples look very high if you don't have some model right. for what you think the future growth will be. So this is very hard for investors 
uh, which is why for uh, individual investors, we say, take the emotion out. You can own a product that's a basket of these names. So when some aren't always going to work, so you have a little bit of diversity in that basket. I will say, though, the orientation these days, the largest and most liquid IPOs have been a lot of tech and software companies and some healthcare. So it is weighted to those sectors that are pretty popular right now. Ideally, uh, it's better to be involved in, ideally it's better to be involved in these companies when there's a lot of fear in the market. That's for anything. So the best time to buy in the stock market is when there's a lot of fear. I don't see fear around right now. So maybe it's a good time to sit back a little bit. That dip we had in the tech company, time for tech might have been a little little bit of uh, a notice to maybe if you wanted to add something. But I would say without seeing fear, you have to be worried about uh, how much momentum there is in this market. And we see multiples are extremely high. It's uh, And ultimately, of course, it's the speed with which the market got back to where it was, I think, that concerns us. I, I, I look at that with a certain amount of puzzlement. When Main Street, Kathleen, in, and the pandemic is still rife, and I see a market that has recovered to such levels, I cannot square that circle. Can you? Well, I think basically the stock market is really a discounting mechanism of the future. And um, this market is looking at a recovery from the pandemic that will benefit certain industries. So that's the only way to square this. It is, there's a lot of enthusiasm. I do wanna highlight that this week because there's so many companies coming public. I'll call it a blizzard of IPOs and leading the pack are Snowflake, which has just raised its range. It's trying to raise $3 billion at a market cap of 37 billion for this company. And that is represents something like 80 times trailing sales. I don't know if I'll live that long to see the companies uh, justify that huge multiple, but there's so much interest in this cloud company, even Warren Buffett, who's given up on value investing, is uh, getting shares on this IPO, which tells you that uh, I guess we, if we follow Warren Buffett, and I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for Snowflake. Um, there's going to be just, it'll be hard to contain that company when it comes out. I, I caution investors, I think, uh, if you can get shares on the IPO, that's great. But it'll be, it's very hard to justify $37 billion. <laughs> That is the most highly valued software company Kathleen. we've seen ever. Kathleen, it is good to have you. Thank you. I appreciate the, the bluntness and the frank speak as we look at those IPOs. And we'll follow them, of course, as we go. Now, there's a moment. 60 years of OPEC. It's a cartel. Cartels are normally bad. In fact, in some cases, they're illegal. Uh, but OPEC has lasted for 60 years. We asked the Secretary General whether this cartel is still relevant. An exclusive interview next. As OPEC celebrates its 60th anniversary, it's been a torrid year for the price of oil, of course. At one stage, the futures market even going negative. But that doesn't stop the OPEC Secretary General from being bullish on the future demand for oil and the future of the cartel. He spoke exclusively to John Defterius. The global economy uh, continue 
to witness some anemic uh, recovery, if you like. What we are witnessing, despite the unprecedented amount of stimulus packages around the world, uh, north of $20 trillion, about a fifth of the global economy, the economic recovery is not at the pace uh, that uh, we projected. Would you say, Secretary General, that it'll take until 2023 to get back up to where we were in 2019? That's the word I got from the shale producers in the Permian Basin. Uh, We are not that pessimistic here in OPEC. Uh, We uh, foresee a strong rebound in 2021, in the first half of 2021, with numbers ranging around seven to eight million barrels a day, uh, hinged on the GDP growth uh, rate of about 4.7 going, going higher. On this, your 60th anniversary, many are asking the question, what is the relevance of OPEC? But let's just take the last five years, if you were not at play during three major corrections, As an organization, we had survived 60 years uh, of highs and lows. Uh, We had our own good and bad times. But what we have witnessed in the last five years, including the current one, uh, were totally unprecedented. Uh, However, we have proven again, once again, that the world needs this organization. And we have seen in 2016, December, when we reached out to our partners in the non-OPEC, who came on board to sign the Declaration of Cooperation that was historic. The mechanism of the Declaration of Cooperation with all the partners on board rose to the challenge in April and in June to respond uh, to the impact of this virus on the global economy. As you know, many people have written off OPEC in the past and it didn't play out the way they were thinking, but in this energy transition, can you get to 100 years old and survive with all the investment that's going into renewables today? It's about half of global investment in energy. You're quite right that we were reaching off as an organization, not once in the last 60 years, and uh, we proved to the contrary. And going forward, yes, we acknowledge in our outlook that renewables will continue to attract investments. It will continue to grow. But in our latest outlook to 2045, the alternative energy sources, the renewables, will account for less than 20%. Oil and gas will continue to dominate this energy basket. And the terrorist is with me now, John. Um, you know, we, we know, I mean, BP this week is going to be giving its presentation to the market about how it's moving away from fossils and renewing towards renewable and what the long term strategy is. If you take that on board, is OPEC essentially a dodo waiting for its own extinction? 
Well, there's a big gap on what the future looks like, uh, Richard. I think COVID-19 serving as an inflection point here, and BP tends to agree. Uh, in fact, they put out their energy outlook for 2020 and then forecasting to 2050, which is not easy to do. But let's take a quick look at the chart. And I just took the mid-range predictions by BP here. We hit over 100 million barrels of daily demand last year. OPEC admitted that's dropping to 90 million this year, the first contraction in modern history. But look at the blue line there from BP. Uh, with oil demand in 2050 dropping to 55 million barrels a day. If you follow the Paris Climate Agreement uh, targets, that needs to go to 30 million barrels. So this is going to be a radical, rapid change, according to BP. They say renewables will make up 60% of the market by 2050. The Secretary General, as you saw, Richard, was saying that'll be 20%. So I say mind the gap and follow the money. The money right now is rapidly shifting to the renewable sector Oil investment, by the way, dropped a trillion dollars, according to the IEA, in 2020 as a result of this. Okay, but John, the other problem with OPEC, of course, is not just that the, the, the members cheat, but that they don't, they don't like each other very much in some cases, uh, and that there are internal, um, internal rivalries. America, which is not OPEC, of course, is now the world's largest uh, producer, which begs the question about OPEC's ability to maintain discipline and to, I mean, it's no longer the swing producer. Can it maintain discipline? Uh, well, uh, Richard, their, their role now is, is trying to shore up the excess capacity in the world and they're cutting production to your point until 2022, not at the level they had to do in April, May and June, uh, but still the fact they're extending it uh, through the first quarter of 2022 says something right now. You're talking about the rivalries within OPEC plus Saudi Arabia and Russia had that dispute. It was Donald Trump that leaned on them to come together to cut to production. Uh, but the correction in the shale basin, by the way, is quite radical. It's three million barrels a day. So you have Russia, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. almost running at level peg. What we could see here playing out over the next 25 to 30 years, Richard, is that it's the last man standing scenario where the Middle East producers, particularly those here on the Arabian Peninsula where I'm sitting, uh, are the low-cost producers of the world. So if you have a scenario where the demand is only 30 to 55 million barrels a day, the market share will rest here, not in the United States. It's a threat to Russia, uh, places like Nigeria, Iraq, Venezuela, right? So this could have wide-ranging geopolitical considerations as a result of the energy transition, which is being triggered right now by COVID-19. John of Terry is looking well and joining us from Abu Dhabi. John, thank you. Nicola is fighting back, or Nicola is fighting back. A short seller has accused the electronic truck manufacturer of fraud. We'll have the details on Nicola's rebuttal next. Nicola is denying allegations of fraud that are being made by a short seller in the market. You'll recall that Nicola's EV electric vehicle trucks the IPO'd last week and the company did extremely well. But there have now been allegations which Trevor Milton, the CEO, vigorously denies. We spoke to Milton last week before the allegations were made. Well, I would say most of the core IP is all Nikola's and, and all the design, the interiors, the, uh, um, the controls over the air updating, the infotainment system, all that stuff is, is Nikola's, you know, Nikola's IP. And so um, GM's just helping us build it, and they're helping us drive down our cost. 
So, Nicola, you, with GM's help, and GM says it's concerned about what's, what's being said, Paul LaMonica is with me. Um, Paul, so these allegations by a short seller, one, of course, immediately says, you know, short sellers have a vested interest in pushing the price down. Uh, but, do, but, but does the market generally think that there might be at least um, a whiff of something, or is this all smoke? No, I think the market is definitely very concerned, Richard, because Nikola's shares have tumbled since these allegations by Hindenburg. One of the most damning ones is that the prototype for one of its electric cars, the Nikola One, basically was brought to a top of a hill and rolled down instead of using its own technology to drive the car. And uh, Nikola has denied uh, some of the allegations, but they did kind of concede that they never were really trying to showcase the uh, full scale of its electric technology in that Nikola 1 prototype, which has now been abandoned and they've moved on to the Nikola 2. But uh, I think that Trevor Milton, as you know, he spoke to you, you know, there are, uh, you know, some legitimate uh, gripes that he has with Hindenburg. Short sellers clearly like to try and profit from stocks that have risen up dramatically and Nikola's shares did go pretty crazy after the GM investment. GM taking about an 11% stake. And Nikola has some pretty impressive partners as well. Customers planning to buy, pre-order these trucks. You've got Republic Services, a big garbage collector, buying electric garbage trucks. And Anheuser-Busch also uh, placing an order. Yes, sir. We will have to leave it there. Paul LaMonica. Thanking you for that on Nicola's share price. That is our program for today. I'm Richard Quest. Julia Chatterley is back with you tomorrow. I'll leave you with the markets that are strong and looking good. And that's a great start to a Monday. As always, whatever you're up to, it's hope it's profitable. I'll be back with Christmas Business. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.